Good morning. It's good to see everybody and welcome to service. As you're coming in, I hope that you've got a bulletin to follow along with. It's nice to see everybody coming in. If you're looking for a place to seat, just remember the last few on one side. Sometimes we use for masks still, but for the rest, I think we're spread out and doing well. But hopefully you got a bulletin. I'm going to begin this morning and welcome you. If you're here visiting with us, you'll see a blue card there in the pew somewhere around you. If not, they're in the foyer. Uh, we appreciate if you take a moment and fill one of those out, at least so we'll have a record of your visit. But if you at least give us an email address, we can email you and link with you and send bulletins and information, and you can uh, keep up to date with whatever it is that's going on here at the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the opportunity to be able to worship together. Lord, that we can be in the presence of the children of God, the covenant community. Lord, that we can share our hurts, our concerns, our burdens. Lord, we can share our our laughs, our joys. Lord, we can build one another up. That way the burdens can be halved and the joys can be doubled. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be here, that you would call us into your presence. Bless us this morning as we meet. Lord, open our hearts and minds that we'll truly understand the importance of what it means to be real. Lord, help us in the parts of our lives where we're not living the truth. And Lord, let your Holy Spirit convict us so that we can make those changes and bring glory to you. Father, we realize again that no matter how hard we try, we'll never earn the right to be in your presence. No matter what we've accomplished, the reward is not to be given to to be closer to you. Lord, it's simply that you gave us your son, Jesus Christ, and he has opened the veil He's torn away the barriers that existed. And Lord, we're now able to come together as a body, praying as you taught us, saying, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let me call us to worship, taken from Psalm 33 and 35. And uh, it says, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Let those who delight in his righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servants. It's on the mission team. I want to ask you to come right up front here. And the church is going to pray for us. While they're coming up, I just want to briefly explain what we're going to be doing. So next Saturday, our team will be heading up to Atlantic City, New Jersey. We will be working with a sister church called Hopeful or called um, uh, New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. That's right. And we've been going on this trip. We've gone several times. I've gone once before, and and a few of these have gone. And we are really looking forward to coming alongside this congregation that works in a community that has many needs, as, as all communities do, but perhaps a little bit different than our community. And we're going to learn, we're going to serve, and we're going to share the gospel with kids and with everybody who we come across. So many preparations uh, are being made. We've got one more big meeting this afternoon at four, 
and we'll be leaving next Saturday. So you all can be praying for us. We'd appreciate that. And I'm going to have Pastor Jerry come up and pray for our team. All right, let's take a moment to pray. You can see how many parents are going. And uh, pray for those who are left behind. Uh, yeah. I was thinking of Kelly Schwastik. That's what I was really thinking of. So let, let's take a moment and pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for this team. Lord, they're part of us. And Lord, though we all can't go, we've been able to help financially. We've been able to help support. Lord, we pray already, not just for the blessing that they'll receive. Lord, I pray that they'll receive a servant's heart, that it won't be a week just to get away. Lord, it'll be a, a time to truly eye what it is that you're accomplishing around the globe. And in this special city, in churches that struggle with people who are hurting, the Lord, our backyard Bible clubs, our uh, lessons, our activities, our, our songs of joy, Lord, that will touch the hearts and allow the gospel to be shared. Lord, I also pray that you'll work in the hearts of these leaders, that as they go to serve and lead others, that, Lord, you may call them, that you may already begin planting the seed through the Holy Spirit of using them in the future to do full-time ministry. And so, Lord, I just ask that you'll provide safety as they travel, you'll give them wisdom in the decisions they make, and you'll give them joy that they'll be able to share this wonderful time together. We ask that you bring them back safe and sound, but, Lord, more than anything, that you would get the glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have the privilege again to confess our faith, again, through the words of the Shorter Catechism. So let me read the question, and then let's all respond together. Which is the third commandment? The third commandment is, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. What is required in the third commandment? The third commandment requireth the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. Father in heaven, we confess that our hearts do not always bow in true devotion that you are not always present in our thoughts. We confess that your truth does not always shine within us, that our lips do not always sing your praise. Father, we confess our faith needs to be increased, that our sins need to be forgiven, that our hearts need to be circumcised, and our minds need true repentance. Grant these to us, Father, we pray, so we can worship in spirit and truth here this place. Amen. Mark 10, 45 reminds us, as do so many places in Scripture, that we do have the assurance of pardon. Mark writes, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for the many. If you're here today and you have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he has given his life for you. You can be saved. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You may be seated, and I hope you brought your Bibles to turn with me to the book of 1 John. You'll find it there in the back. And what a blessing to be able to just sing the scriptures. 
to be able to understand how powerful the words of the, our psalmist wrote. And to know here this morning that I want to take you on a brief introduction and around the world look at the book of First John. I won't dive directly into the text. If I said earlier before, I remind you that First John is one of the easiest, nicest, smoothiest. I've heard all kinds of fancy words for it. When it comes to Greek, it's the beginner's book. It's the book that if you learn just a certain few words, you can understand most of the book. And so I encourage you, I know some of you take uh, some of the Greek languages in school, and some of you are taking it home. I know the church we left, the pastor actually has a Greek class, and so my daughter and them are taking Greek there at the church. And so it's an exciting time when people want to learn the languages and to be able to read and to share them. And so uh, I'm going to take you on a journey, but again, I want to begin by prefacing, please pray for me. First John is about assurance. It really is a little book that reminds us. It changes the life of all Christianity when the church came to the realization through some of its great leaders that you can know that you're saved. You do not have to live in confusion. One of the great cardinal sins in the Catholic Church was presumption. It was the presuming that you have the right to think that you're saved. And yet we live with the truths of Scripture that remind us, especially in 1 John, that there are those that should be scared. There are those that should be worried. And maybe you're here this morning and you have the right to say to yourself, you know, Pastor, I too need assurance. My life hasn't been the prettiest. I haven't accomplished the most for the Lord. I haven't always done the right thing when the choice was made. And yet I remind you that none of that has to do with your salvation. You cannot earn it. You don't deserve it. And if your righteousness is based on what you can accomplish... You need to be worried. What you can know is that what Jesus has accomplished and why Jesus has come is that he was able to completely satisfy what God wanted, not you. And so now we find ourselves living in a world in which many people have made the decisions. And here recently, more so than not, about how easy it is to walk away from the presence of the church and to find other avenues of being apart without being involved. John writes, because of a big word, giving you the history of those cessationists, those that went out from them, those that left. We find one of the hardest verses in 1 John 2.19 when he says, they went out from us because they were not of us. Now, he's not talking about going from one church to another. I remind you, that though I believe the PCA has it good and probably most correct in my mind, I still fellowship tremendously with my Baptist brothers and sisters. I fellowship with the community church, even the Methodists. (laughs) We're not talking about from one church to another church because all churches are corrupt. I want you to know that. And what I mean by that is not that we're completely evil, But because sin affects every part of our human being, and because we are sinners, there is no church that's perfect. And so we fellowship among. What we do see that John writes us is that there are those that have gone out from the church, from the fellowship, 
They've decided that they can believe what they want about Christ. They can decide to believe what they want about God and what Jesus has accomplished and do it on their own and still claim fellowship with God. One of the amazing things about religion, and I've shared it many a times for the years that I taught down in North Carolina, was how many religions you can come up with and they'll never let go of Jesus. Doesn't matter what religion it is around the world, they'll either see Jesus as a man, a teacher, a prophet. Some will even take him partway as a priest. Some would see him as a great leader. The problem of it is you can't let go of Jesus completely or you'll find yourself having no truth whatsoever. So yes, Jesus is the truth. John's writing because he wants you to see that you can have fellowship with God when you understand correctly who Jesus really is. And so as we go through the book of 1 John, I want to challenge you, as he was writing to those, I believe, in the area of Ephesus, there's all kinds of debates over the years about how things were done, but I truly believe it's there that he's writing in a circular letter to be read by others, just like 2nd and 3rd John. They're together, they're the written letters, epistles, that the same who writes the gospel of John in Revelation. So you'll see some great consistency between those books as he's writing. But he begins in one short verse. I'm not going to take the whole introduction this morning, but I want to take and give you an overarching view and a challenge to you this morning about your life, about my life, but just how many times you have to ask yourself, am I real? Am I real? Am I an authentic Christian? Or am I living a lie? You see, the battle comes to all of us because we all find ourselves in different places in Scripture because the Holy Spirit convicts us on the areas that we struggle with and they're not all the same. I wish there was one area that I could say, Holy Spirit, when you hit that area, I know you've got them. The problem of it is sometimes I see the Holy Spirit convict a person, I think, okay, he's working on their hearts. And I get so involved on in what he's doing on their lives that I don't realize what's going on in my own life. And then the next thing you know, I've got the Holy Spirit convicted me. And believe it or not, your pastor, as great as he is, as wonderful as he is, sometimes he himself looks in the mirror and says, are you living a lie? Are you just the pastor on Sunday mornings? Do you carry out the truths every day of the week? Do you demonstrate the same grace that you would to members of the church, to your children? Do you show your wife the same love that you would show others in the church and the grace when they make mistakes? See, I'm not talking about just challenging whether or not you're truly saved. John's writing to Christians. John's writing to those that he knows are in the faith. He's writing to those and confronting the statements that are being made by those who have left the fellowship and are claiming that they too can have their own fellowship apart from what John is teaching and I'm here to tell you this morning that you cannot have fellowship with God if you don't have a proper understanding of Jesus Christ. What separates Christianity is we truly believe that Jesus fulfills prophet, priest, and king. He is the answer to the Old Testament promises. He is the fulfillment of the covenants that God made with us. He was the anticipated answer to overcoming all of our sins. He is the truth that sets us free. John writes all of this in a letter, and in one verse, let me begin, as you're going back, I challenge you to do your own study, pick your own commentaries, 
Go get those that you love. It's, it's good to read. Join with me in the next several weeks as we learn the importance about authenticity. Here's what John says in the first verse. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, in which we have looked upon, gazed upon, we've actually, almost like a microscopic view, we have observed this thing and have touched with our hands. It wasn't just a distance. It's concerning the word of life. Now, I could take the whole introduction this morning down through verses, but I think there's so much that we can unpack in the future that I want to give you an overview today on how do I know what authentic Christianity is. The reason I say that is because if you understand what authentic Christianity is, then you can be authentically Christian. Let me, let me make this clear. Just because you go to an authentic Christian church doesn't mean you're authentically Christian. You've got to make a decision. The objective truth of who Jesus is must become the subjective truth that you grasp and believe and hold forth as true. If Jesus is not your personal Savior, you're not authentic. And you're going to find yourself struggling through so many things in life. Because you're going to find yourself doing what many people have done, and they've come up with all kinds of ways to water down the truth that God has given us so that they're happy at serving in the little bits that they do. So for those who were pulling apart, John's writing constantly about whether or not they're in the light or the darkness, whether or not they have the Holy Spirit or a false prophet, whether or not they love the brethren or hate each other whether or not they understand that they're children of God or children of Satan. These are all the themes that come through in 1 John, all because he says this, I have a witness of the truth. Let me tell you about Jesus for just a moment. How do you know what's truth? These weren't my words. I believe voices said them many times over in many commentaries and reform series. You can go back to some of the new Pillar Testament commentaries. They all come to the same situation when they say, what's the test of truth? I'll let you write this down. You can keep it in your mind. The test of truth. One, it's a historical event. John writes, that which was from the beginning in which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, we've looked upon it, we've touched it with our hands. This is a historical event. Jesus is not a figment of our imagination. Jesus was not a made-up story that people would be encouraged by to go for. Jesus was not a motivational challenge to get people to overcome the government. Jesus was not just a, a PowerPoint that people could live upon. It was not our own self-made awareness, as some psychologists would say, so that we would feel better about ourselves. John writes to say, I'm telling you about the truth, a historical event that I have seen, I have heard him, and I have touched him. If this is the Apostle John that writes, can you imagine leaning back on the breast of Jesus at the Lord's table and then having someone tell you that he wasn't real? 
You see, it's the historical truth. It's also the apostolic witness is what makes it true. Our Bible is not just a bunch of writings that people have said, hey, I, I, I like him and I'd like to write about him and talk about what he did. We have eyewitnesses, apostolic truth, those that were with him, those that lived together, those that were chosen by him, those that were called out of their own lives to be an authentic witness. Do you remember some of the bravest or or hardest words that become the most convicting were the words that Jesus said to the fishermen. Do you remember how it changed their lives? When he looked at them and he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of what? Men. Stop worrying yourselves with all the catch. Stop worrying yourselves with the things that you think can truly feed you and keep you and clothe you. If you're going to follow me, I'm going to show you that what really matters is what you do to other people. He writes an entire section in chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who knows God loves God. It's born of God. And then he gives us the great negative statement. In the Greek, you could put it this way, no one who does not love, loves God. Beloved, it's about authenticity of a witness. It's about the truth of a historical event. It's about knowing that what John's talking about is something he has actually been a part of. It's not just story. And finally, we love it because the testaments come true to us when it comes to the book of Acts. John writes it. He's seen it. But we have something that Jesus himself promised. He said, when I go to be with the Father, I will send you the what? The comforter the Holy Spirit, who will testify to these things and bear witness of the truth. You're here this morning, and you understand the Scriptures. You have a love and a compassion for the children of God. You desire to know more of what God is teaching, all because the Holy Spirit is working in your heart. It is not because you're a special person. You didn't just wake up and say, today's the day I've decided to change. It's been long enough. I've tried hard enough. I'm just going to give in and just let Jesus have my life. One of the hardest statements that people say, they don't realize the truth of this message is when they say this. I was 10 years old when I made Jesus Lord of my life. Anything wrong with that? You hear people share their testimonies. I was at a vacation Bible school, eight years old, when I made Jesus Lord of my life. I was 13, going through high school. He would saved me through a car wreck. He brought me from the depths of what I thought would be the end of life. When I realized what he has done, I made Jesus Lord of my life. Do you catch anything wrong with that? How can you make the King of Kings and Lord of Lords Lord of anything? It's Jesus who revealed himself to you through the Holy Spirit. You don't make Jesus Lord. You acknowledge Jesus as Lord. You see, conversion is when things change in your life and you realize you can't do it on your own. You need something greater than yourself. You need something to happen in your life to change you. And so you beg and you plead and you cry out, Lord, whatever it is, save me. I remember when teaching through the classes when we would talk about salvation, the difference between how God saves us, whether you have a part in it or whether it's all of God. One of my students is the same story. He's read it all. 
I love Geisler. He's one of the great apologists from an Arminian perspective. And he writes the story and he constantly states and teaches his students that you're in the midst of drowning. And God has come to you and he wants to save you and he has thrown you the life saver. It's up to you now. All you have to do is reach out and what? Grab it. You've heard the story a million times. But I like how some of our Reformed writers reply when he says, you know, it's amazing. Jesus didn't come down to save you while you were hurting and while you were drowning and while you were about to run out of energy and couldn't make it on your own. Jesus came to save you because you had already sunk to the bottoms of the ocean. Your body had already filled with the rest of the ocean. There was no more life in you. You were dead and ready to rot and float. There's no lifesaver up there waiting for you to grab. Do you know what Jesus did? He didn't throw a lifesaver. He jumped down from the portals of heaven, dove to the deepest parts of the depths of your life, and he pulled you up and breathed life back into you, sat you up, gave you life, and gave you a path to go, and you have the gall to say, I'll make you Lord. Jesus is who saves, the truth. Let me give you the points this morning. How do I know it's authentic? Number one, write this down, it's correct doctrine. Your elders uphold that as elders in your church. I've talked to them, their important role is to uphold doctrine, which means truth. There is a theological basis. John writes, I have seen this, I've held it, I've touched it, and it concerns the word of life. It is doctrinally truth. There is a reason we're not afraid to write our truths in the confession of faith. We're unashamed to put them out in public, to let people read them, because we know they don't change. The scriptures are true. You must have authenticity in your life by understanding correct doctrine, who Jesus is, what he has done, what he came to accomplish. Because if you challenge who Jesus is, then you challenge what he has come to do. You see, it all builds on itself. If you take away that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is God in the flesh, that he is perfect and without sin, you take away his ability to be the sacrifice for those sins. You take away the compassion and the covenant awareness that he came to do it for us because we couldn't do it ourselves. If he's not able to do that, then he can't die and he can't be raised from the dead. If he's not raised from the dead, he's not ascended to the Father. He's not interceding for you. Do you see, just the correct doctrine about Jesus changes every aspect of your life. And yet you have those that say, we can be in fellowship with God and not believe the truth about Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning, and not in a bad way. You said, you know, Pastor, I think I've been living a lie. Because I never really realized how important Jesus was to this picture. I never realized how helpless I really am. And I always thought it was up to me. And I've been living a lie. It's not just about doctrine. You can write this down. Another word, I like the alliterations that go along with them. But it's about your duty, your moral righteousness of keeping God's command. John's going to write us. I'll preach to it later as it unfolds. But he simply says, you cannot be my disciples if you don't obey me. He writes it in the Gospels. He writes here that you can't say that you're walking in the light if you're living in darkness. You can't say that you're a Christian if you're not obeying the scriptures. Oh, this is a challenge for all of us because we all know the parts of the Bible that we love the most. 
And we always love to use them on other people when they don't do what we like. It's amazing how we remember those verses that come right out when we need them. And then when someone says, well, yeah, but what about when John said about loving your brother? Wow, where'd you get that one? It's amazing. They call it selective hearing. I call it selective thinking. Selective remembering. It's almost like we know the truth when we want them, and then we forget them when they're against us. You see, living a lie isn't a bad thing. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not saying go out and live a lie. Please don't leave today and say, you know, Dr. Jerry Strait said we can live a lie and we can do what we want. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it's a good thing when you recognize you're living a lie. Do you know why? Because when you recognize you're living a lie, you call upon Jesus to make the change. The truth becomes evident in your life. And now you are set free to live the authentic Christian life. There's no longer stress put on your own self. You don't have to try to be good. You don't have to try to earn yourself righteousness in front of God. You don't have to try to earn God's pleasure. You don't have to try to please God. You don't have to become something you'll never be. You see, authentic Christianity sets you free. That's why Jesus said, if I set you free, you'll be free indeed. You have the right to just live in God's grace. To understand that your rightness with God is not based on his pleasure with you. Your rightness with God is based on his pleasure with his son. I want you to catch that. It's what Jesus did for the Father that changed God's attitude towards you. Not what you have done for the Father. There's nothing you can do to change God's attitude, his alienation, his anger at sin in your life by what you do. If you think that you can earn God's favor, you are living a lie. I pray that you'll recognize that and say, I'm a liar. Because the problem of it is if you don't, you turn to chapter 3 and listen to what it says in verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Let no one deceive you who practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous, but whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Folks, we can't go on sinning and get away with it. If you say that you have no sin, you are a liar. Those are John's words, not mine. If you say you have not sinned, then you make him a liar because God says you've sinned. So please look at it this way. Pastor, I've been living a lie. Thank the Lord. Let me finish that you've come to realize that because now you're ready to be converted because the Holy Spirit has convicted and brought about the truth and you're ready to be set free now you have the truth of who Jesus is and what he has come to do and that is his life his obedience what he has done that brings pleasure to God that allows him to forgive us stop trying to be what you're not able to become you will not be fully righteous until the day God calls you home. And until that, we ask you to rely on God's grace. You need correct doctrine. You need to understand the duty, obeying all that you can, doing what God has asked you to do. Oh, our Old Testament writes it clearly in the prophet's writings, but none better than what does it take but to do justice and to love mercy 
and to walk humbly with our God. How do I know I'm authentic? Well, you have correct doctrine. You're accomplishing the duties of moral righteousness, doing what God's asked if you wish. Finally, let me give the third point, and that's called devotion. That's love. I'm using the word devotion because agape, the word for love, is a whole lot more than how you feel. When someone comes to you and says, man, I love you, did you say, you mean agape type? Right? You've said that every time, right? You never said, as most people would, apologize the expression, but you mean phileo type? That's the friendship type love. That's where we get the word Philadelphia, brotherly love. That's the Greek word. No, it's agape. It's not the erotic love, eros. For most of us in this world, that's the Greek word we choose. When we say we love someone, it's because we're infatuated with them. It's because we have our own selfish motive and desire and what it is we want to accomplish. It's amazing how selfish we are when we look at the person that means most to us. And we tell them we love them, and we're thinking about an entirely different love than agape. So I choose to use the word, how do I know I'm authentic? It's because you have the correct doctrine. It's because you're obligated and you're keeping your duties of righteousness of God's word. And it's because you understand your devotion to one another. You know, the church will crumble when we no longer love each other. Because who else is expected to take care of the church? Yes, he writes it. How can you claim to have fellowship with God and hate your brother? How can you claim to walk in the light and not care for those in need? How can you claim to be in fellowship with us and not want to come be a part? It's a yearning that exists in all of us. I can tell you right now, as much as I love my family and as much as my wife has done for me over all the years, it's been a selfish relationship I've understood. She agreed to it when we started, though. Because over time, you realize that I fall into the same trap of looking at my wife many times saying, how can you help me be what God wants me to be? Kind of use her as a stepping ladder and a stepping stone to climb up because I'm the man, I'm the head of this house, and God's going to use me, and how can you help me be that? Oh, until we realize we look in the mirror and say, God, I'm living a lie. Maybe as the one who covers her. Maybe as the one who supports, strengthens. The Bible says that you should be able to look at her face and see the glory of God because of you. You see, the one thing I can say, though I feel she's done all that to me, is I can say I'm never really content. She'll never be able to make me content. I'll tell you why. Because no matter how hard I try, no matter how many people I've reached, no matter how many people I share the gospel with, no matter what it is that I've tried to accomplish, my heart never rests while I know there's one out there that still doesn't know the truth. Jesus, as he taught his disciples, they wrote it and said it this way, God rejoices more over the one that is what? Lost. Than the 99 that are there. You see, the love of the brethren reaches out to those 
who are going stray, who are wandering. That lost sheep was part of the fold. It wasn't just out there lost. It was those that sometimes we say to ourselves, it's been too long and I know they're not interested and we all find ourselves falling prey. I've tried hard enough and long enough and I've called them and I've talked to them and I've done what I could and they're just not interested. They just don't want to come. They just don't want to be a part. They're fed up. They've had enough. They don't like, folks, we've been there. But you're authentic when that devotion is real. That's why you hurt. That's why you pray. And that's why you continue. Yes, you're authentic this morning according to John. If the word of life has touched you so that you have the correct doctrine, that yes, you're feeling your obligations of duty, your devotion of righteousness to his commands because you want to. One of the greatest writers that we get of all time throughout history, whether it was from Calvin clear back to Augustine, comes up to our modern day writers through our commentaries. And he makes this, we have a, conva- a radically changed life, a conversion that the world immediately sees the difference between us and them. James Boyce wrote it this way, the Holy Spirit is what makes obedience possible. And then he says, but it's our love for God that makes obedience desirable. You're authentic when you feel a devotion of love to the fellowship of God. You're authentic when you love the duty of obedience to his commands. You're authentic when you strive to understand the truth or the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And you're authentic when you find yourself, lastly, defending the faith. Do not let what is good be spoken of as evil. Words from the Apostle Paul. Do not let what is good be spoken of as evil. Well, how do I know I'm living a lie? You just told me about the truth. I'll give you these quickly and I'll close. John gives them. We'll preach to them in weeks to come. How do I know? Well, here's how you know you're living a lie. One, you're in the darkness. In other words, you're living in rebellion, your sin in your life, and you're covering it up. That's why they call it darkness. Anything that's exposed to God is brought into the light. He sees it all. Everybody knows it. You're unashamed of it. We're all sinners. I'm not asking you to empty the whole basket of sin in your life. But you've got to, when it comes to you and Christ, you can't live in darkness. You can't act as though you're a Christian and still harbor sin and darkness in your life. If there's something bothering you, confess it. Fall down before the Lord. Wail. Weep. Find a closet. Nobody has to know. But let him know, I'm tired of being in the darkness. You're also living a lie if you're denying the work of Jesus. I know Jesus did a lot, but you think he really thinks that we have to be righteous? You think we have to be pure? Do you really think the Bible means what it says about being faithful? You see, when you start denying those things, you're living a lie. Because what you're doing is you're twisting the truth to fit your life. So rather than standing up in truth of doctrine, you're living in the denials of life. If you're here this morning and you're living a lie, it's because there's darkness in your life that you're unwilling to face. And you're denying the things that you know are true. You know them more than anybody else. John writes them, he says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. If you have not sinned, you make God a liar. 
John writes when he says this finally, if your desires are for the world, you're living a lie. Because the desires of this world are passing away. The desires for this world. That's what John writes. In the Gospels, he even writes us and says this. Matthew writes it as we read in chapter 6. You cannot serve two masters. You must love the one and what? Hate the other. I ask you a point-blank question. Do you hate the world? So many of us have gotten so involved in the world. Yes, we love God, but we love the world just as much. And so it taints our faithfulness. You're living a lie if you're in the darkness, if you're denying the truth, and if your desires are for the world. And then I will tell you this in 1 John, I believe it's 2.17, and this and the world is passing away along with its desires except for the one who does the will of God and abides forever. You're living a lie and you're going to be doomed. Yes, I'll give them all to you again. You probably don't remember them all. But if you're going to live the authentic Christian life, you've got to have doctrine that's correct. You've got to be committed to your duty of upholding the truths of God's word. And you've got to be devoted to the family of God and defend your faith. But you're living a lie when you're in darkness. You're denying the truths. Your desires are for the world and you realize now you're going to be doomed. Just like the cessationists, those that came out. Listen to what they say through the book of John. These are the people that went out from us because they were not really of us. They claimed to be in the light, but they walked in darkness. They claimed to be without sin, and they deceived themselves. These are John's words throughout the book. They claimed to not have sinned, and they made God a liar. They claimed to have known God, but they refused to obey him. They claimed to have fellowship with one another, but hated their brothers. And they claimed to be converted, but left their sin undisturbed. I ask you this morning, are you an authentic Christian? Are you living a lie? Chapter 3, verse 6. You can write it down. He gives us the negatives. No one who is in Christ keeps on sinning. No one who continues sinning has seen or known God. And that while you were a what? A sinner. Christ died for you. I write these things for those of you who believe that Christ died for you, that you might know you're authentic and you're not living a lie. Let's pray. Yeah. Heavenly Father, thank you that John writes us so clearly that we have a basic presentation of the gospel. The Lord, we understand it is about how we live, that there is a difference between us and the false prophets. There's a difference between us and the phony Christians. There's a difference between us and the world. 
And Lord, though we fall and though we fail, and Lord, though we are dependent solely on your grace, Lord, help us to be more like Jesus. We'll give you the praise and glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul simply said to me, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And God's children said, Amen. Amen. Have a great Lord's Day.